You are now entering the transit zone. The pandemic is far from over. I repeat, the pandemic is far from over. WHO continues to be concerned about the increasing trends in Africa, Eastern Europe, Latin America, and some Asian countries. I continue to call for the world to come together in solidarity and national unity to confront this pandemic. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. This is Episode 2 in the Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast series, aimed at giving you more in-depth information about the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Podcast 1 was about the virus itself. The second episode is about the pandemic, and the third will examine the responses around the world to the coronavirus pandemic. These first two podcasts in the trilogy are being produced in early and mid-August 2020. Once again, our guide for these Pandemic Primer podcasts is Australian-raised, now New Zealand-based, epidemiologist Professor John Potter. John is Professor at the Centre for Public Health Research, Massey University in Wellington, New Zealand, as well as Professor and Senior Advisor, Seattle's Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre, where he was Director of its Division of Public Health Sciences. He's also Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the University of Washington. From 2016 to 2019, he was Chief Science Advisor to the New Zealand Ministry of Health. John is one of the most cited scientific authors in the world and closely tracks global epidemiological research into the coronavirus. The Transit Zone Pandemic Primer podcast. This time, the pandemic. John, welcome back to the Transit Zone. Nice to be here, Peter. We spoke last time in Podcast One about the virus, the coronavirus in particular, and about infection. It seems a natural step now to really put the spotlight on the pandemic. People listening to this podcast, perhaps in a month or so, will be able to place it historically very easily. Here in Victoria, we are in dire straits, as you probably saw yourself as an epidemiologist keeping track of things. We were in a very good position only a few weeks back. I also add that there are breakouts happening in New South Wales, very particular hotspots, as we've come to call them. And even in Queensland, just a couple of visitors via Victoria have started a few scares up in Queensland as well. Meanwhile, WA is holding the line. So today, let's talk about the pandemic as a phenomenon, as a public health phenomenon in Australia, there in New Zealand where you are in the South Island, and also around the world. We're getting extraordinary figures globally, which I'll mention in just a moment. Before we do all that, let's define pandemic. We're using the term every day. What do we mean by a pandemic from an epidemiologist's point of view? What is a pandemic? If a disease is present more or less continuously in a population, we say that it's endemic. For example, malaria is endemic in parts of Africa and other parts of the tropics. Epidemic refers to a disease that's widespread in a particular area. For instance, just last year in Auckland, we had a measles epidemic. The word pandemic identifies even more widespread disease infecting many individuals in multiple places. 
Now, we're used to thinking about influenza pandemics, and certainly there was a grand one about a century ago. But in the 14th century, for instance, the Black Death was a pandemic disease. Pandemic really defines itself as a wide geographic spread. It's not related to severity, although usually a disease has to be very infectious in order to be as widespread as to become a pandemic. So here in Australia at the moment, John, we have Victoria confronting rising figures every day. WA is almost down to zero community transmissions. Queensland has a couple of community transmissions. It really goes back to what you were saying in podcast one about how infectious this is. We just had a few missteps in Victoria and away it went via family, via churches, via workplaces in particular, certainly via aged care and meatworks and small goods factories, which we'll come to in just a moment. We're hearing in journalism quite a lot that this is the second wave, and you alluded a moment ago to the Spanish flu from 1918, which had a first wave and a clear second wave, which many argue was worse than the first wave. Are we truly in a second wave here in Australia, and in Victoria in particular, or is this just a continuation of the first wave? The difference with the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, was that there, there really was a wave and then a gap and then a second wave. That's not what we're seeing here. Mostly what we're seeing is an attempt to suppress the disease in its early phases. The brakes are lifted off. The rules are made less stressful, if you like. People are allowed more freedom. Suddenly, you've got more people contacting more other people. Susceptibles run into people who are infected. Perhaps sometimes they don't even know they're infected. And away it goes, as you said, exactly like that. In 1918, 1919, the second wave was more severe than the first, but there was a distinct lull between them. It was really March, April, May, and then a, a lull, and then it began again in August of 1918. It spread rapidly then. But there's little evidence in most places of a second wave that's intrinsic to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's mostly the world still in its first phase. Even where there have been marked declines in the infection, the so-called second wave has been the result of lifting of restrictions too early without proper tracking and tracing in place. Is it the overhang from the Spanish flu that we keep referring to a first wave and a second wave? I perceive what's happened here. We're, we're sort of locked into that historical view. The pandemic in 1918-19 arrived in waves. It actually had three waves. We're not seeing actual lulls, as you describe it, in the Spanish flu, but we are seeing green shoots and the politicians particularly and perhaps the medical authorities jump on those green shoots and say, oh, we're flattening the curve. And of course, we see it in Australia. We see it in spades in the United States. Open everything up again. Let's go. And I think that happened pretty quickly, imprudently, rapidly with a rushed agenda here in Australia as well, including Victoria. So later on, we'll talk about elimination and suppression and those two ideologies, if you like. But we are seeing people perceiving perhaps a lull, the flattening of the curve, everything's okay. I guess that's what we call wishful thinking. The flattening of the curve, of course, is really important. Basically, what you're doing with the notion of flattening the curve is spreading the number of cases out over a longer period of time so that your healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. It's not actually eliminating necessarily the number of cases in total that you might see. And yes, there's been quite a good success in a lot of places in spreading that curve 
over a longer period of time and therefore reducing its peak, less load on the healthcare system. But it doesn't mean that you're dealing with a really good control of the pandemic. Epidemiologically, is it important, whether we call it a first wave or a second wave, in terms of looking at this spread and then looking at this virus in its second wave phase? Is that important or is it just a matter of of categorisation? I think the latter. We're dealing with the manifestation of the disease in the population, the kinds of steps that we need to put in place in order to control the disease. And you can decide about a policy on that, whether you're going for elimination, whether you're going for suppression, whether you think you can get to herd immunity, any of those choices, at least make those choices and then decide what the policies that have to be put in place are. And it doesn't matter then whether we're talking about the disease as it originally emerges or the disease in in a later time. Is it accurate to then describe what we're experiencing in Australia with WA with almost no community transmission, Victoria with a very high level, New South Wales with a moderate level and Queensland with a, a minimal level of community transmission? Do we still have a pandemic in Australia across the continent? Yes, because what you're dealing with is the presence of the virus and its threat in a whole set of different places, not just obviously in Australia, but the world around. And as long as the virus is present, if it's under control because of particular steps that have been taken, it's still hanging there. New Zealand at the moment's got cases coming back to the country from returning travellers being isolated. Those folks are still part of the pandemic. The same thing in Taiwan. They've essentially limited, eliminated the virus The threat from incomings, the threat from hidden transmission that is the result of perhaps illegal movements or certainly unsociable movements and then spread in the community, the threat exists all the time, right the world around at the moment. That's a pandemic. It's very disturbing to me and I think to most of the people I speak with, John, how quickly and I guess how easily it happens. We have a couple of visitors going up to Queensland, allegedly deceiving the authorities and police about where they'd been, and they've created some community infections up there. It seems to happen, number one, so easily, and number two, so quickly. You talked about how infectious this was, and we tried in podcast one to dig into that, just how that was occurring. In your imagination, how do you see these people actually transmitting it? Is it again via transferring tiny little amounts of the virus to another person via hands or whatever? Or is a lot of this happening in your imagination as an epidemiologist, of course, based on your underlying knowledge, through the air? We're seeing hotels, we're seeing restaurants, the Thai Rock Cafe in New South Wales. Is a lot of this, as you perceive it, happening via airborne virus? Infection can be spread in a variety of ways. And this one is predominantly by droplet transfer or by aerosols, which is implicit in your question. The virus can become aerosolized for prolonged periods, not just attached to the larger droplets that we associate with being within a meter of somebody and infected because they sneezed or coughed or even shouted. WHO notes the the respiratory droplets defined as more than five and up to 10 micrometers in diameter. They spread only a short distance and then they drop to the ground. Droplets smaller than five micrometers in diameter are referred to as aerosols. And 
close contact with an individual up to a meter away gives you the droplet spread infection. Aerosols disseminate the droplets over much longer distances and for longer periods of time. The smaller droplets just hang in the air for a longer time. It's known to occur in medical procedures when you've got things going on in an operating theatre, say, but it looks as though it's what happens in crowded places with poor ventilation. In choir practice, there's evidence of, of spread among singers. And then obviously in places like restaurants and gyms, all of these places with their crowding and the close distance, but also the low movement, slow movement of air, aerosolization may result. And there's the even more problematic feature, if you like, of aerosols resulting from flushing a toilet. The virus get excreted in feces, a closed lid reduces the risk. You seem to be implying, John, that those droplets, those very tiny droplets, the aerosolized form of the virus, the virus seems to be surviving longer hanging in the air than it may be on one example you gave, a stainless steel surface or a cardboard surface or a plastic surface. The survival rate on those surfaces seems to be quite low, but it seems to be higher hanging in the air for quite long periods. That presents a a much more acute danger, doesn't it? I think not, because on some surfaces they can survive 72 hours on some surfaces. Although, as I think we mentioned, in the real-world tests, they did a nice study in Germany, only 3 or 4% of the objects they people were touching, like doorknobs and TV remotes, only 3% of them in a whole bunch of houses, 20 more houses, actually showed virus. It hangs in the air longer than it hangs from droplets, transmitted by shouting, but it can exist for longer periods on surfaces. The aerosol seems to be somewhere in the middle, but it's still a danger when you've got a lot of people in a closed space. We'll come to face masks very shortly because that's all part of the prevention tactic, particularly, I guess, with the airborne virus. One of the things we've learned as we've examined this, you talked about incoming travellers to New Zealand, and I tracked the figures here in Australia from the very beginning of the pandemic, And as you looked each day, the bulk of them were about incoming travellers because we had a lot of incoming travellers then going into quarantine. There were certain laxities early on, which probably didn't help us. Of course, we had the Ruby Princess as well, people disembarking, about 3,000 of them from a ship that quite clearly had COVID on board. So we had incoming travellers. That was what it was all about. Now we seem to have almost an inversion of that via, of course, a breakdown in security within a hotel-based quarantine and out into the community it went. It went via families, but particularly within workplaces. We had an example of even a legal firm that refused to allow its workers to work from home and they copped a fair old dose of the virus within their workplace, within an office space, thinking back to what you just said about airborne virus and I guess uh, common touch points within workplaces. But we also have meatworks. This is a common tale right around the world in the United States, in the United Kingdom, but certainly here in Australia. We had a lot of meatworks, especially here in Victoria, but also in New South Wales. We have Colac, a regional centre here in Victoria, where we have a meatworks outbreak, and that's causing great consternation in Colac. What is it about meatworks? I guess people in close quarters, but also that environment with, in an abattoir with blood and the chill, etc. Is that all part of the equation? Why are meatworks such a, an incubator for this virus? The simplest explanation is the one you've already mentioned. That is, there's a lot of people working in close contact for prolonged periods of time. 
in that sense, it's a bit like a bar or a, or a crowded restaurant. Whether there's anything additional that's the result of working surrounded by blood and animal excreta and all that, whether that adds to the risk is not clear. It clearly adds to the general risk in the sense that it's been shown that viral loads in, in meat workers is actually higher than viral load in the general population. There are even interesting observations like higher risk of some diseases that we know are transmitted by bacteria and viruses. But it's not clear that that's what's going on here. I mean, certainly the animals are not a source of the virus, so that's not the issue. Whether it will turn out that there's something about the working conditions that make them worse than any other crowded working conditions, I don't think we know yet. You spend much of your time in the United States. I'm just looking at today's figures. We have globally 17 million, more than 17 million new cases, although shortly we'll talk about just how reliable all this data is. And we have over 669,000 deaths. That's globally. Of course, some of those figures are quite unreliable. In the United States, where you work professionally for many years, John, they've got about 151,474 deaths. That's about a quarter of the global. Their cases are also about a quarter of the global. It seems to be ripping through many states in the United States. Looking back to the country where you spent so much of your professional life, how are you viewing all that? Are they in really deep trouble as we watch those figures just rise every day? Yeah, I was just on, on a conference call with a colleague in Oregon. Their rates are scary to everybody who's there, their case numbers, their mortality. In a whole bunch of places now, the system's overwhelmed. There are not enough ICU beds. There are some places where there are not enough ventilators. There are some places where there's not even enough oxygen. There are counties in Texas where they've instituted a triaging process where they send people home if they don't think they're going to be able to survive even with hospital care. That's not something you see outside of war zones usually. The whole system is overwhelmed in the United States. It's partly to do with complete lack of national leadership. It's partly to do with the fact that people have different rules in all of the 50 states. Some are trying basically to close down movement and, and so on. Some have instituted masks. But there's also the additional strange thing that particularly is part of the United States, and that is you cannot limit my freedom. It is my right to not wear a mask anywhere I go. That kind of thinking, which is totally self-absorbed rather than community aware, is what's also contributing to the spread in the United States. John, you talked about being overwhelmed, the hospital system, but I'm also seeing the whole track and tracing and testing being somewhat overwhelmed. We're seeing, even here in Victoria, people complaining about the long time it takes to get test results, which seems to undermine the whole process, really. If you don't get your test result, it makes it much more difficult all round. And we're also seeing different forms of testing. I think the Doherty Institute here in Victoria has developed a saliva test. How are you seeing the evolution and improvement of tests? And would it be better eventually if we can use something akin to the saliva test to be able to drive in, have the test, get the results straight away? Do you see that as possible? And would that make things much better? Most of the testing that we're doing is a sample collected via a nose swab, sometimes mouth or throat, 
sometimes sputum. The virus is detected or not by a lab procedure called RT-PCR. This looks for unique genetic signatures associated with this virus. This was made possible because very early on, Chinese scientists released the complete genetic sequence for the virus, greatly facilitated the development of tests. They were developed rapidly, especially in Australia. The tests are quite reliable because they use well-established technology. There are false negative tests, and that's why we tend to do repeats. There can be false positive tests because sometimes bits of broken virus will still be there where the infective particles have actually gone. You can do a different kind of test involving checking the blood for antibodies to the virus at the moment used more in research than monitoring. The possibility of using saliva tests and rapid assessment is real and is potential. Some universities and clinicians are planning to add that to the approaches they already use. In the, in the US, for instance, University of Chicago is going to be using saliva tests to clear patients prior to elective surgeries, and they're going to be doing it over the next who knows how long. UK government's partnered with a molecular diagnostics company to test the efficacy of a saliva test. It provides a pretty crude sample, but the methods that are used for amplifying the evidence of the virus has been used to detect outbreaks of Zika and Ebola, and that's particularly useful in resource-poor countries. So this is going to be a technology that we will add, but it's not right there right now. It seems to me there is a mathematical reality here that the, as the numbers build and the infections build, the actual workload increases, obviously. All that testing being done, getting it to the lab, however quick that process actually is, that all takes time and it puts a workload on labs and, of course, potentially could undermine the efficacy and accuracy of those tests. Yes, and also their utility, because if you're using it to track down people and you wait for five, six, seven days before you get a result back, then I don't remember who was my contact and I can't give you the best information about who was with me at the time, etc. So the turnaround time is really important for tracking and tracing as well as for the management of the wider pandemic. You may have been following our COVID safe app here in Australia, which has hit all sorts of shoals and has virtually done nothing in terms of providing accurate tracing. This is on a smartphone, and we've seen other apps around the world which may or may not be better. It's interesting, isn't it, that with all the technology we've got and we live in a digital world, that we haven't been able to fashion some of that technology to be more effective in terms of tracking back in people's contacts. And we are relying on human memory here a lot, aren't we? Which, of course, itself is very fallible. Are you a little surprised that we haven't been a little more adept at bending technology to our will to counteract some of the ravages of the pandemic? In New Zealand, there's an app that allows you to scan a digital code, obviously, into places where you go, supermarkets, restaurants, whatever, and thereby keep a kind of diary in your phone where you've been. That turns out not to be particularly popular or widely used as well. People have just walked past them. Part of the reason they do is for those of us who tried them the first few times, we got null readings when we used our phones to look at the digital readout. I think we're used to having that sort of stuff work just like that, and nobody's managed to get it 
so that it, it's really easy and sensible and, and keeps track of us in a good way. The earlier notion in New Zealand was keep a diary. That's a useful thing to do. But you're quite right. Most people don't do that. Most people's lives are not of that sort. We've not done well with this. Interesting, and I hate to say this, but slightly more or very much more authoritarian polities have a slight advantage here, don't they? Countries where surveillance is already well established using CCTV and tracking people without even asking them and invading their privacy with impunity. So they perhaps have a slight advantage when the pandemics arrive. I think it's a marked advantage, but I'm not quite sure whether I'm willing to trade the surveillance society for this. I would rather that we do the Ardern thing and join the team and say, this is what we do in our community. This is how we behave towards each other to protect each other's health, rather than have Big Brother leaning over our shoulder and saying, you will do this or else. It's not always predictable how well a society will go in terms of their apparent preparedness for something like this pandemic. Singapore early on seemed to be in the box seat, didn't it? But perhaps they forgot, perhaps they just put off to the side in their imagination those very large dormitories and rather squalid environments where their guest workers were accommodated. And those squalid conditions proved to be another incubator for Singapore, and they had a real upsurge of infections. So situations like that in various societies, we've seen it in other places as well around the world in both developed and developing countries. So some of those things, which authorities don't always factor in from the very first step, can come back to bite you. Yeah, it also turns out, though, that there's a kind of almost contrary example. Vietnam, middle-income country, they're right now they're facing an outbreak which emerged very recently and had the first community transmission cases since April. But initially, they responded really well, and they did so because they had experience with the SARS epidemic in 2002-03 and had a, a surveillance system for the purpose of tracking infectious disease in place. They did the tracking and tracing. They put in a bunch of recommendations about distancing and mask wearing and so on, and ended up with an incredibly low caseload and a zero mortality. If you've got preparedness in the community and you've already built the tools, then you can achieve what perhaps high-income countries have failed to do and actually protect the population. And they use face masks from very early on. That's an interesting example. Yes. You're in the Transit Zone for the second of three Pandemic Primer podcasts. I'm Peter Clark with Professor John Potter in Nelson, New Zealand. You said to me once in our earlier discussions that the numbers, the actual numbers of cases could be manyfold greater than we're seeing. We're seeing 17 million, more than 17 million globally in those huge numbers in the United States. We're seeing numbers here. How reliable are those headline numbers and how can we tell? There are two ways of looking at it. One is to just simply ask the question, how many deaths are occurring in July this year versus July last year or July, an average of Julys that go back in time. 
And it turns out that there are excess deaths, and that's what you see in parts of the world. In fact, every part of the world that's looked at it. So that tells you that at least some people are dying probably because of this, possibly because they can't get care for some other reason, but they're dying and they're not being recorded as COVID-19 deaths. CDC did an estimate in the US and came up with the notion that the underestimate of cases may be as many as tenfold overall. So that's suggesting that instead of there being the numbers we're talking about in the world at the moment, 17 million, maybe it's 170 million. That's just an extrapolation. There are no really good data to tell us that. But certainly there's a major underestimate of cases and there's a good evidence that there's an underestimate of deaths. That's tied to testing too, isn't it? Testing shows up to some degree just what the extent of infection within a particular community is. And it's easier in some, I'm comparing, say, New Zealand, small population and a fairly small land area. Compare that to somewhere you're quite familiar with too, India. Just imagine the lurking cases there that don't even get looked at or people dying without even clearly defining what they're dying from as this particular virus. So around the world, all these figures that we see coming out of Johns Hopkins or other people offering us data, that data is basically pretty unreliable, isn't it? It sort of gives us a flaw. It tells us how yesterday looks today on the basis of the numbers that we've got. And then you have to suggest, okay, maybe we've got a major underestimate going on, but the underestimate is likely to stay the same. So you can decide what factor you want to multiply by and then say, this is really what's happening in the world. But you're absolutely right. There's a huge difference between a country that's got sufficient resources to be able to keep an eye on what's going on in the community versus low and middle income countries that just simply don't have the infrastructure. One of the things that's that's not happening in a lot of places is surveillance testing. So just going out into a community and testing asymptomatic people, testing them and finding out how many people without symptoms are actually carrying the disease. But in a lot of places, there's not even testing going on when you know that this person whom I saw yesterday turned out to be infected. Am I going to get tested today, tomorrow, in the next week? A lot of tracking and tracing just not going on in the world. And that's the way not only to get an idea of the load, but it's also a way to establish control and to be able to isolate those people who are contacts of somebody who's known to be infected. We hear about serology surveys as another forensic tool for getting a better handle on the actual numbers out there who are infected. What is that and how does it work and how does it give us a better handle on the numbers? So that gives us a measure of people's antibody responses, basically. That's what you're asking. You're asking, what's the evidence that somebody was infected? Because serology is obviously not using a nasal swab, it's using blood. And what you're measuring in blood is usually antibodies. At the moment, they've been used in some places, but we don't have a a global handle using serology services at the moment. Here's a dumb question. We know that this virus is quite hard to eliminate within the body, but we do find it fairly easy to eliminate it outside the body, don't we? Um, we use hand sanitizer all the time. I've got a great jug of high concentration alcohol that I've made an alcohol spray from, and I use that everywhere. We are able to get rid of it just by washing our hands thoroughly for that long period with uh, plenty of soap. So what's happening there? How are we actually killing, and I use the term advisedly, how are we actually 
getting rid of this virus by just hand sanitizing and washing. Pretty vigorous hand washing for 20 seconds with soap. And you can count to 20 because most people don't usually wash their hands for 20 seconds. So you need to think it through. What that's doing is dissolving the coat around the virus and just simply eliminating it that way. Same thing with alcohol. It's basically breaking down the surface of the virus and the virus then becomes destroyed. Surface washing, wiping is probably better than not doing anything. It may make us feel better. I'm not aware of clear evidence that that is a way of people protect themselves. But I think the awareness is part of it, right? Because if you're aware enough to spray your door handles, you're also aware enough to wash your hands. If you're aware enough to, to spray your handles, you're also aware enough to know that you should be wearing a mask. There's a combination of behaviours that have to do with awareness, social distancing, etc., that comes as a package as into how we deal with this virus. Anecdotally, on something like the Ruby Princess, apparently one of the tricky areas was the underneath the seats in the buffet area, that they didn't clean that area. So people did distribute virus underneath their seats. The next people came in, pulled the seat in, snap, there it was. They were infected or certainly got it on their hands, wiped their face and away they went. So it's actually very tricky, isn't it? And complicated because we could distribute this virus in all sorts of locations around us, common touch points, lifts, to really be rigorous, it takes a lot of concentration, doesn't it? I've heard some people say, I've never had such clean hands. Perhaps it does come back to just having really clean hands. Really clean hands are important. And actually, there have been a number of people making the observation that people have sort of stopped washing their hands in quite as frequent away as they used to. We're reacquiring that habit, I hope. We'll call it the new hygiene, shall we? <laughs> Sounds good. Let's talk about face masks. You didn't use face masks as part of the tactic there in New Zealand, and I say you. The authorities didn't mandate face masks, but you had great success in New Zealand. We've only just recently mandated them in Victoria, and it's not just Melbourne and the Mitchell Shire, the immediate area around Melbourne, but the whole of Victoria now has mandated face masks. Where do they fit in this mosaic of prevention tactics for coronavirus? There was a lot of ambivalence, a lot of ambiguity, and in fact, almost an act of arguing against using face masks early in Australia. We see face masks in the United States used as a part of a, a culture war, a symbol of opposition to Donald Trump as president, and he's encouraged that. That sort of shifted, but that's still very present in the United States. There was a clear ambiguity about it here in Australia, and I'm seeing a bit of a resistance, albeit much smaller than the, in the United States. Why was there that early ambivalence and ambiguity from medical authorities that they had to do a backflip on? What was that about? There were two things going on there. One was nobody was absolutely sure, although it was a sensible and logical notion, nobody had really good solid data that it was a useful strategy. WHO was particularly worried about the fact that if everybody went scrambling after masks, you may or may not remember this, but there were a whole lot of things going on about the international trade in masks all of a sudden at the early point of this pandemic. But WHO was worried that if everybody wanted masks, then the folks who really needed them, the healthcare workers at the front line, wouldn't have enough. And so they kind of dampened the value for Joe and Josephine average. I think now, 
two things have changed that. One is the availability of masks has cranked up hugely. Formal masks like the N95 and so on. People have learned a lot about how to make masks, homemade or commercially made fabric masks look like they work pretty well. There was a well-done study where three of the top five best-performing samples in preventing droplet spread, which is what we're trying to do here, were woven cotton, 100% cotton with high to moderate yarn counts, and then there were used synthetic ones as well. Multi-layered cloth masks probably increase protection. The maximum filtration efficiency is going to be actually limited by your your breathability. They do work. There are key features about masks that I think we should all keep in mind. They're most useful in protecting the world against the infected person who's wearing the mask. They remind everyone else that wearing a mask is a good strategy. I appreciate that becomes part of a culture war if you want it to be. But they remind people that wearing a mask is a good strategy to protect family, friends, community. The Japanese for whom mask wearing is a comfortable, almost routine approach to infectious disease, probably began wearing masks in the time of the 1819 influenza pandemic, when it was key to infection control. So Asians particularly have long been comfortable with masks in public, either to protect themselves or others. We need to now, I think, make that part of the way we think about this virus, possibly other influenza pandemics in the future. So those people we see in photographs sitting with scared eyes above their masks on aircraft, on commercial flights, most of them would be thinking this mask is protecting me from the virus. But you're saying that in fact, right down at a basic operational level, it's protecting all those people on the flight from anyone who may have the virus. Is that what you're saying? It is because the masks are most useful for preventing droplet spread out of the mouth and nose of the individual who's wearing the mask. But you can see that the reverse would also be true. And there's sufficient layers on a well-constructed mask properly worn will also, of course, reduce incoming from aerosols or other people's droplets. Here's a basic question. The Spanish flu stopped at some point. Other flus come and they go. Why can't we say this particular pandemic will just subside naturally? Do you believe it will? I don't think we know the answer to that question yet, but the signs are not good. And a lot of it has to do with the degree of infectiousness of this particular virus. It's likely to persist until a sufficient number of people in the world either are vaccinated against it, or if we think we're going to get to herd immunity, that's a whole different thing and the mortality rate will be massive. This one is very infectious. It's a robust virus it looks like it's going to be around for quite a while. Influenza pandemics are influenced by the degree to which influenza will also mutate, and sometimes it just mutates itself out of existence. It's also temperature dependent. We've not seen clear evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is temperature dependent. It's raging in the Northern Hemisphere in the summer. It's raging in Victoria right now. How important is it epidemiologically to know the actual unequivocal 
origins of this particular virus. And there we start to talk about animal sources as well. But there's a bit of an obsession about whether it came from China. Obviously, Donald Trump's using that as a political tool. But we have the story of it starting in the wet market, perhaps transferred from bats. We even got poor old pangolins dragged into the equation. Clearly, it does come from animals and wild animals in particular. There are all sorts of factors at work there. But how important is it now as we deal with it to know about its origins? My thought is that determining the exact origin right now is not important for the immediate control of the pandemic. It will be important in the longer term in order to understand the causes of the initial emergence here and the risk of future outbreaks of this or other viruses. There's a paper just been published which says that there are coronaviruses in bats that all look like they could be poised to become potentially infectious in humans. Yes, the animal story is real and important, and our interface with the wild world is part of what is making this more likely. But the exact cause, the exact origin, not terribly helpful for controlling this pandemic now. As you as an epidemiologist look at what we can do if the worst case scenarios play out, as they could over the next six months or so in the longer term, perhaps we don't get a vaccine. Perhaps this virus is resistant to having immunity even after infection. Perhaps we'll be able to be infected repeatedly by this virus. They're pretty dire and dystopian outlooks, aren't they? But what will we do as human beings? I'm imagining, for example, this is just a small thing, in restaurants where people might transfer it through the air, that they'll have very large and muscular evacuator fans to have a continual updraft in the in restaurants. We'll adjust our spatial behaviours. Do you see it as a possibility in workplaces that we adopt very different protocols beyond just hand washing and hand sanitising, the way we space ourselves with each other? Do you see that starting to emerge in an incipient way right now? And is that a prospect for us, John? My crystal ball is in the workshop for repair at the moment. And your guess is just as good as mine about where some of this goes. A couple of clues, I think. People are already and have already changed their workplace behaviours. A lot more people are working from home. A lot more companies and offices have discovered that they can indeed trust their workers to work from home. And indeed, it looks like people may even be more productive at home because there are fewer distractions around the water cooler or in the the coffee room. Some of that behavior is already changing. It's not changing for people in what we call essential services jobs. Those folks have to be out there delivering things, responding to needs in all sorts of parts of the community, whether it's working in a supermarket working in a petrol station, whatever, deliveries, etc. There's a lot of stuff there that's not going to go away and those folks are going to remain at high risk. Making their lives better protected seems to me to be a really important step to take. We need to think about all of the steps that are associated with hygiene and distancing and masks and tracking and tracing. We need to have those working at high levels in our communities, and especially if we're going to have a long-term problem with this particular pandemic. I want to talk about trust finally, because we see your profession both extolled and 
excoriated almost in the same breath by different people. Oh, they got it wrong in the first place, perhaps not understanding that it's an evolving situation and data is important and analysing that data is important. But trust is an ineffable thing, isn't it? And we look to the the health authorities like you and uh, all the people we've got as chief medical officers around our country here. We look to them each day to give us fair dink of information, don't we? And try to put some sort of trust in them. But when they slip up or appear to give slightly wonky information or do backflips as they have on face masks, that trust to some extent is undermined. How do you see that dynamic in that equation, our relationship with people like you? I think it's really important to be humble in the face of data and to project your uncertainty. One of the problems, however, is that when you're talking with media, people want a 30-second soundbite and they want a yes-no answer and they don't want fuzzy edges around it. So people like me end up trying to give a more complicated answer and nobody wants to hear it. And so they edit out the pieces they don't want to hear. But you're right. We have to be less certain. We have to be honest about what we know and what we don't know. And there are about this particular virus, there's a huge amount we don't know. About this pandemic, there's a huge amount we don't know. But I think people have to appreciate that the amount of information around changes all the time. For instance, we've got this intriguing observation that, and we've talked about this, that kids seem to be much less susceptible to the disease than adults. Adolescents look like they're somewhere in the middle, and it certainly increases risk with age. There's a paper just out today in JAMA Pediatrics that says When you look in the nasopharyngeal swabs, so where we take the swabs from to do the testing in kids, they are carrying somewhere between 10 and 100 times the viral load of adults. That's a brand new observation, right? So that just makes things even more complicated. They seem to be less affected by the disease, but they seem to be carrying a lot more virus. Now, obviously, this needs replication that needs to be done again. But if that's what's going on, there's just one more mystery about this virus. And I think we have to be careful to make clear that all knowledge is provisional. All theories about this disease, about its spread, about its treatment, about its prevention are provisional. And we need to be in a place where we are ready to change our views and change the advice that we give But equally, we have to have a community that is willing to hear that that was not a definitive answer, that that was something that we thought was true at the time it was said, and now we've got some changed information. Now we need to take this step and that step. But of course, it's more complicated than that, isn't it, in the world of real politic? It's the politician, the Prime Minister, the Premier that steps up to the podium first and lays out the data, lays out the new restrictions, the numbers of people allowed, the spatial distances required or suggested. So that's a complicated relationship between the medical advisors. You've probably got a better insight into this in your imagination in the back rooms there as they work their models and they discuss things. And of course, the politicians want something less fuzzy too, so they can go out and be clear cut in front of the population and do good public communications, which I must say we haven't had 
very much of here in Australia. We've had a lot of incongruities, a lot of contradictions, a lot of inconsistencies, and a lot of confusions in the public communications. For example, when Morrison, much earlier in the pandemic, talked about only allowing 500 people in a certain space, I went, where does that number come from? Why 500? Why not 250? Why not 10? Five people at funerals, 10 people at weddings, all those sort of numbers, they may be based on some sort of actuarial analysis and some authenticity, but I have my doubts. And of course, they get shifted all the time. One day we have the AFL playing virtually an empty stadium, and a couple of weeks later we have 20,000 people assembling in a stadium in South Australia. That all seems slightly crazy to me. How does it seem to you? One of the nice things about New Zealand's responses is that there was some really good advice from several important and useful people who were gathered together to provide advice to the government, and then the government listening to it, and then the government being willing to institute fairly rapid changes, communication of advice made well, ideas made clear. Most of the recommendations of the epidemiologists who provided it being listened to, and an effective response across the community because the communication from the politicians, and particularly from the Prime Minister, was clear. It wasn't an order. It was much more of a coach talking to the team and saying, OK, we're the team of five million people. We need to do this together. We can only achieve this together. Prime Minister Arvidern used the expression, go early, go hard. And that's exactly what she did. It's very much a football metaphor, if you like, a rugby metaphor, but it worked and a lot of people listened. The communication between the population disease control experts and the politicians, that's an important step. And then the important step of the politician communicating well. In New Zealand, the communication persisted all the way through the lockdown, where you had the Prime Minister, usually accompanied by the Director General of Health, and the two of them gave straight information about how many cases were occurring, what were the recommendations that were coming up, when was Cabinet going to make the next decision about when to when to change the plan, when would we institute the, the lockdown, when would we institute the easing of the lockdown, all that stuff was communicated very clearly on a daily basis. It really mattered, and it really made a difference in New Zealand. But in New Zealand, you didn't seem to get as much of what we seem to be experiencing now, fatigue, an ennui with the whole process, uh, particularly from the younger cohort. If you look at the figures, that 20 to 39 cohort is so highly represented in the infection rate. And we're seeing still kids having parties or even infection COVID parties. We're seeing at the extreme end, of course, complete disbelief and Suggestions that there's still a hoax, there are conspiracy theories, 5G, Bill Gates, etc., all that stuff. But we are seeing a general resentment, a resistance to the how long this is going. Because in our society now, we expect things to change quite quickly. We expect to have agency. Here we don't have much agency at the moment. It's happening to us, and we don't seem to be able to do much apart from putting on a face mask and staying at home. That's an undercurrent, isn't it? It's almost a substrate to the epidemiological attempts to control this virus. Does that come into your profession as well, into your analysis, the ennui, the fatigue, the boredom, and just that natural human response to something that's ongoing much longer than expected? It's clearly a problem, but it's a population problem. It's not a professional problem. It's 
something that affects everybody. It's the kind of society we live in. And I don't think I've got any better insights into that than you do. I will say that the advantage of Ardern's notion of going early, going hard, committing to the lockdown, having everybody isolated in bubbles. And it wasn't just isolated from each other. It was isolated in bubbles. It was, you've just got your household and that's it. That's your interaction for the next four weeks. And very few people broke that. Some did, but very few did. And it really meant that you had 28 days in which to track down all the cases that might already be in existence because they cranked up the the capacity to do the tracking and tracing at the same time as the lockdown was on. So you, you identify all the cases you've got and you you reduce the number of people that any one person is exposed to to such a small number that you're, as it were, physically reducing the R naught very close to, to zero, not just one. But you're reducing it way down. So the number of people, number of susceptibles that come in exposed by infected people just drops and drops and drops. You do it over 28 days, that's two cycles, if you like, of potential infection and disease expression. By the time you get to the end of that, you've got a complete control of the disease. Now you just need to control your borders. All of that, if it's not done properly, however, and you have to ease off the controls and then slam them down again and then ease off the controls, that's what drives people into a state where they are either bored or angry. And that's what's happened in a lot of places is instead of going for the elimination, instead of going for the complete shutdown, instead of going for a high quality tracking and tracing, there's been this attempt to sort of do it in a half-assed way. And and we've ended up with half-assed results. And that ends up with a lot of anger and a combination of anger and boredom, right? It's the boredom amongst the young people. I don't like this. And it's anger amongst people who think they're being controlled. John, next time we get together in the third in this trilogy of podcasts, The Pandemic Primer, we're going to dig into this nub debate between elimination and suppression, which you've already alluded to a number of times, particularly using New Zealand as an example. We'll also examine the prospects for a vaccine and look at the disparate responses in different countries around the world, some with very good outcomes, some with appalling outcomes, and of course, the United States, which we've referenced so often in these podcasts. Thank you so much. Spot you next time right here in the Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. New Zealand-based epidemiologist Professor John Potter. You can learn more about John and his research in the on-screen text with this podcast, plus many useful links to very good quality information about the coronavirus. The next Pandemic Primer podcast will focus on the response to the coronavirus pandemic around the world, with a special focus on the latest upsurge of infections in New Zealand, where John Potter is, after over 100 days without community transmission there. What are the lessons we can learn from that new outbreak in what was the global exemplar of a COVID-19 elimination strategy? And we'll discuss further those two competing ideologies of elimination and suppression of this intensely infectious virus. And we'll also ask that key question, what are the actual prospects for an effective vaccine for SARS-CoV-2? How long might it protect us from infection? And how soon might that vaccine be actually available? I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for listening. And please join us for Podcast 3 in the Pandemic Primer Podcast three-part series, right here 
in the transit zone. You are now leaving the transit, the transit zone. zone.